Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So, um, it's been a a big day for <clears throat> probably for all of you, because there's any time there's a, a shift in the energy and um, some change in the schedule after all these days of practice, you can probably feel it. <clears throat> and particularly for those who've opened up their mouths and started talking, I'm sure you could feel a little bit of a change. Is that so? The voice is still there, it's still found its way back into your body. <clears throat> Sometimes it takes a a little while. I remember when I first started doing retreats and breaking silence, and it, it took me a little while for my voice to come back. It's like, oh, am I going to ever come together again? And uh, you will, in case you're wondering. Um, I wanted to uh, give a talk tonight that could both address the departing yogis and those uh, who are continuing on. For the departing yogis, um, this is just a, a reflection on how to bring our practice out into the world. And for those continuing on, um, to have some perspective that will hopefully um, be a pep talk to inspire you to continue doing what you're doing and to get a sense of um, what we do with everything that we've learned and that we're learning here. <clears throat> the meta practice, as probably most people can attest by now, um, can be hard. And it can also be, and often is, exquisitely beautiful. So many people have come into interviews and said, you know, I just didn't get it. Or maybe, I still don't get it, but it's good. <laughs> um, and it's exquisitely beautiful and it's worth it. All the, all the work that you've put into it as you I think of it as programming your heart, programming your mind, programming your spirit in the direction of, um, of love. And if we're willing to face the difficulties and be there with the purification <clears throat> and even willing to open up to the most difficult people in our lives, that doesn't seem like something one would sign up for, you know. Oh, great, I get to be with the most difficult people in my, my life and be silent and sit still and just send them love. If we're able to do that, it's an extraordinary practice, isn't it? If we are, then something more powerful and transforming than we could ever have realized that we possess starts to emerge. 
You know, a guy talked about the other day, uh, last night, about how suffering and being with the hard stuff can lead to faith. It leads to faith not only because you start to question what it's all about, but also that you see that you have this capacity to open up to anything, ultimately. That's what we're, we're pointing towards. And when you see that it's possible, that brings great joy and gladness and confidence, which continues on to the highest stages of, of freedom. So it's hard, but it's worth it. And the same is true in all of life. This same principle is true, whether, it's, whether you're going back out into the world or perhaps uh, continuing on and doing uh, mindfulness practice, Vipassana practice, that the hard stuff will be there. It's the first noble truth. And if we are willing to open up and learn how to relate to it skillfully, it's exquisitely beautiful. Not only the practice, but life can be exquisitely beautiful. There are, as you I'm sure know the phrase, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. So this is not only about dealing with and opening up to the suffering and working with it, but opening up to the to the joys as well. And Guy mentioned last night you know, about uh, that sometimes uh, I'm, I'm Mr. Joy to people and sometimes people roll their eyes like, oh, come on, give me a break. Is that living in denial? Yeah. You, you call yourself a Buddhist teacher? Yeah. Um, and this is not about pasting a smiley smile on your face and saying, yes, everything is fine. The only way or the most profound way to access the deepest capacity for joy, not getting around the suffering, but going right through it, not being afraid of it. You can't say, oh, well, I'll take the love. Give me the compassion. Yeah, let's, let's let that wisdom flow. But let's keep that other stuff down there. I'd, I'd rather not look at that here. You can't leave the suffering out. But as Thich Nhat Hanh says, suffering is not enough. I love that line. Suffering is not enough. And when I think of the people who are the most joyful, my inspirations for joy, two people come to mind. One probably is coming to everybody's mind right now. That's the Dalai Lama. And the other is uh, Desmond Tutu. Both of those, they, they, there's such a similarity to them. They have seen more suffering than any one of us can imagine. Imagine hearing story after story of horrific tales of brutality and cruelty and torture and, and being the recipient of, of all of that, how one doesn't get overwhelmed. And yet, both of them have this amazing, infectious joy that you just want to 
hang out with. How is that possible? Well, maybe you think, okay, they, uh, they've known the secret for a long time, or they were, you know, the Dalai Lama was picked from the time he was one and a half. Sometimes I think, okay, well, if you're told since you were a toddler that you're the Bodhisattva of infinite compassion, maybe you've got a good jump on, on things. You know? <laughs> but it was a lot of work. I, I, um, I love this, uh, the Dalai Lama talking about his own development. He says, people often want to know how to cultivate compassion. They think that I can show them how to do this quickly as if pressing a magic button. They think the Dalai Lama can do things like this. But compassion comes with patience and practice. Mm. The region of Tibet that I come from is called Amdo, and people usually regard those who come from Amdo as short-tempered. So in Tibet, when someone would lose his or her temper, people would often take it as a sign that that person was from Amdo. And when I was young, I was quite short-tempered. However, just through my Buddhist training, I've learned something about compassion and developing a good heart. And that experience has proved very helpful in my day-to-day -day life. When I compare my temperament now to the way it was when I was between the ages of 15 and 20, I see a noticeable difference. <laughs> These days, I hardly find myself irritated at all, and even when I am, it doesn't last long. This is a marvelous benefit of practice and training. And now I'm always quite cheerful. You can't just press the button. This takes practice, patience, and work. And as we can open up to the goodness and the beauty inside and not just focus on what's wrong, as we can do that and we start to also open up to the beauty and the goodness of life around us, then we're able to hold our suffering and our sorrows. We don't flinch because we have a, a greater capacity to not be overwhelmed. And as we can do that, when we don't flinch, we can be here for everything. Uh, Robert Bly has this line, every part of us that we do not learn to accept and love will become hostile to us. So as we open up to our suffering, we see what the Buddha talked of as opening up, seeing suffering directly, and as you see it directly, you come to the end of suffering. I teach suffering and the end of suffering, he said. And one that knows and can be there with suffering and not be afraid of it can come to the end of suffering. So as we do that, as we're able to not be afraid of suffering, we not only affect ourselves, but everyone that we know. When I was 
in college. Queens College, New York City. I went through a, an existential crisis for a couple of months that it was really, really heavy. Maybe reading too much Camus and Sartre or whatever, but it seemed like there was no exit. <laughs> and life just seemed to be pointless, like there was this higher intelligence with a very bizarre sense of humor that, um, that just made life hard. What, what's the point, I kept on asking. And every conversation that I had with my friends during that time ended up in this depressing existential trying to prove my point that life is pointless. Right? <laughs> and my friends just kind of, you know, kept their distance after a while. Okay. Um, and one day um, I was in the cafeteria, Queens College. I was getting really depressed. <clears throat> and I, I looked out around and uh, there was this sea of faces and people who seemed to be generally pretty decent people, seemed decent enough to me. I didn't know most of them, but okay human beings who just wanted to be happy with their life. And I thought for a moment and I said, well, I don't know how it happened, but it just occurred to me the one thing that I could see giving life meaning is to bring a bit more happiness into the world. And although it didn't seem like much, it seemed like enough. Oh, okay. Well, that'll count for something. Something to do with my time. And uh, I would imagine that most of us have had that thought and that feeling somewhere in their life and probably a lot more frequently these days. That we are bodhisattvas in training. To be of use, to help bring a little bit more happiness to others, to help relieve a bit of suffering. It means you have to go through the suffering yourself so you can be there for others. But um, it's, it's the best. Uh, you know, my, um, my job description, I think of, you know, is partly being with other people's pain and wounds and traumas and hurts. It doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun, but it's the best thing that I know. It's the most fulfilling, most rewarding thing that I can, I can think of, that I could imagine. And when I see someone coming in to an interview, going through a really hard time, 
I don't think, oh my goodness, how do I fix them? And will they ever come back to Spirit Rock again? I see them as going through their own bodhisattva training. And so I see each person as a really good investment because as, as they learn to open up and deal with their own pain, then they're going to pass on in their own way the same thing, that you can be there when others are having a hard time. You know, the reason that, that we can sit there with interviews, I know what real fear is like. I know what abject terror is like, or loneliness, or sadness, or sorrow, or confusion. And each of us do. And the same is true as you more and more are willing to, do, to be there for it. That's what you pass on. That's your gift to others. <clears throat> this is uh, from a yogi who sat the month in February. She said, um, this is a tough retreat, all about that heaviness of heart that appeared almost as soon as the retreat started. It's been a deep exploration of an energy in my life that's the hardest thing I've known. Call it grief, contraction, depression, very sticky for me. When it arises, very powerful. So to bring it into the light of awareness, to stay present with it, a piercing pain in the heart, to bring compassion to it, to understand how it connects me with all beings, to know the unstained awareness that can feel it but not be it, to call on a kind of warrior courage in allowing it, seeing what it's been in my life, where it came from, what it says, how I've habitually reacted to it. That's what this whole retreat has been. I'm still so much in the middle of it that I don't know what it will mean to my life to have done this work, but I know I had to do it. And I think there's a healing there a new relationship to sorrow and pain, my own and others. What I can see already is that this ability to stay present with pain, with great awareness and kindness, is the heart of being able to be present in the same way with the pain of others. And that is a gift for certain. That's what we're doing. And we're doing it not just for our own relief of pain, but to be of use to others. This is Nyoshal Kempo, great Tibetan Dzogchen master. He says, we're not practicing for ourselves alone. Since everybody is involved and included in the great scope of our prayers and meditations on this perfectly pure motivation, to benefit others. It's like the rays of the sun which spontaneously reach out. This good heart, this pure mind, vast and open, white mind, they say. It means pure, vast, and open heart. This is what we call innate bodhicitta. 
The very heart essence of Buddha Dharma is to be- benefit others with this bodhicitta. Whatever else we may do is secondary to that. And if we cultivate this good heart, this altruistic, unselfish attitude, then all strife and struggle will naturally be pacified, purified, transformed, and even become beneficial to others through contact with that good heart, which we, the bodhisattvas, strive to embody. And it feels good. It just really feels good to be able to do that. There's a a quote from uh, Schweitzer. He says, uh, I don't know what your destiny will be, but one thing I do know, Albert Schweitzer says, the only ones among you who will be truly happy are those who've sought and found how to serve. So how to do this, how to first open up not only to our own pain, but to the pain of the world. How to do that without being overwhelmed? How to do that with bringing goodness and love and kindness and wisdom and joy as we're facing all the pain and the sorrow and the suffering out there? That's the big question. First, something to understand about compassion, which is really what we're talking about. Compassion is, as you know, one of the Brahma-viharas, one of the divine abodes, one of the heavenly abodes. I said this when I did the compassion meditation, making this point, I want to make it again. It is a heavenly abode, even though compassion is love in the face of suffering. But it's still called a sublime state. Isn't that interesting? That it's a sublime state, even though suffering is a prerequisite for it. How is that that possible? That it's a sublime state. When you're doing the, the compassion practice, It's not that focusing on suffering is so sublime. Oh, great, let's heap it on more. No. It's that that openness to it, it moves the heart, the quivering of the heart. Remember that that phrase? It moves the heart to express the natural caring that's right inside. And that capacity to care is sublime. It feels really good, really good. And as the Dalai Lama says, we can practice it little by little. Being with uh, the difficult person, I wonder how that was for, for you. For some people, it's, oh, I thought it was gonna be really hard and it wasn't as hard as I thought for others. This is a stretch. I'm not ready quite for this one. So I want to talk a little bit about working with the difficult 
people in our lives that we know and perhaps beyond those that we know because you might run to one or two of them as you go about um, living or read, a, read about them in the newspapers from time to time. <laughs> when we have this sense of why don't they get it together? You know, why don't they just wake up and see what I see? <laughs> you know, I, I've had that thought once or twice in my life. It's, um, it's a very understandable thought, but we're missing something when we get outraged and, um, and hateful. We can get outraged. I think there's a point in getting outraged. I'll talk about that maybe in a little while. But hateful, you're missing something. Because remember, the, the hate just poisons. And we aren't agents of effective action and caring. There's a humility that is part of compassion. It's an essential piece that reminds me of the the standard of the 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 line that i'm sure everybody has heard there but for the grace of god go i now you might say wait a second there's some people i don't think i'd be like they are but you don't know we talked about the causes and conditions and everything that went into making somebody who they are and their own karma and as we take that self-righteous, superior attitude, we miss the essence of compassion, which is seeing through the differences. This is um, the Buddha. He says, um, One who thinks oneself equal to others, or superior or inferior, for that very reason disputes. But one who is unmoved by, under those three conditions, for that person, the notions equal, superior, or inferior do not exist. For those free from such views, there are no ties. For one who is delivered by understanding, there are no follies. But those who grasp after views and philosophical opinions, they wander about in the world annoying people. And uh, it seems like we get annoyed a whole lot, and we probably annoy once or twice any time we set ourselves up, yeah, I get it, and they don't. The real villain is not that jerk out there, as we might think of them as, the real villain is ignorance. The real villain is just not seeing clearly. Martin Luther King has this great line, you have no moral persuasive power over anyone who can feel your underlying contempt. You're not going to convince anybody to see it your way if there's this air of superiority and arrogance. It just doesn't work. 
if you truly want to connect and make a difference, you have to see to a deeper place. You have to see there is a Buddha inside there that wants to come out, that just doesn't know how to. Just like Jesus' profound teaching of loving your enemies. What does that mean, loving your enemies? It doesn't necessarily mean liking them. Oh, I like them. But to love them, to go deeper than the outward show, to see this is an expression of life. This is a being who's lost and confused and contracted and causing real suffering and and hurt and harm, perhaps. Then you're not completely under there, uh, under the hate that you would react to. By seeing them, here's a from this book that I, I use in the in the Joy Course, how we choose to be happy. And I've many people have heard me talk about this. This is a, a book that some friends wrote after researching for three years, three hundred identifiably happy people. Right, and uh, this is the story of of one Hannah, who. Um, living in her 300-year-old row house in the heart of Amsterdam. A retired physician, as well as a proud mother and grandmother, and her warm countenance belies her experiences as a Jewish teenager during World War II. When the Nazis swept into Holland, Hannah, as the youngest child, was sent to live with the family, friends in Belgium. Within days, her parents, brothers, and family were rounded up and transported to the concentration camps. When the horror was over, most of her extended family, including her father, who was deported to Auschwitz, never returned. How could she possibly be this happy person that we see in front of us? She was one of these very shiny, radiant beings. They wanted to know. These events were so horrible, she says, so traumatic that it took me a number of years to reconcile my feelings about them, but I never considered myself a victim of what happened during the war. Certainly, I've been terribly hurt. I felt extreme sadness, pain, and loss, but carrying around a feeling of victimhood? No, that would do nothing more than keep such horrors alive. I will not allow myself to be enslaved by the past. From the start, my interest is in positive ways to ensure that this will not happen again. Being a victim, blaming the Nazis is not one of them. Listen, my family has lived peacefully in Amsterdam for more than 400 years, allowing five atrocious years to ruin my historical memory of the other 395 would be a personal tragedy. Feeling that I'm a victim of the Nazis would give them a perverse power over me. It would keep me in their hands and allow them to continue damaging me and my family 50 years later. Letting go leads to happiness. And it talks about how it took her a while to get through her pain and her hurt. It's not something you just switch on. But she inclined towards this other way and is somebody who inspires everybody that she meets. So holding on to her pain and her anger and being a victim, um, all those people would not have been benefited. 
working with a difficult person. I, I remember on one retreat, my difficult person really came up to me, you know, certainly on a whole lot more manageable level than, than Hannah. But there was this person, and I just, she just seemed so tight and, you know, like everything was a problem. And you know, when I thought about her, it was difficult. And I was doing loving kindness and really doing it and starting to feel okay and, you know, maybe a little more opening. And one, one, uh, at one point, I uh, had this, I imagined being in a room with His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, and there each person would come up and receive their blessing. And there was this person in the room, and I just imagined how the Dalai Lama would greet this person. So I kind of looked through the Dalai Lama's eyes at my difficult person, and the, the thought came out to me, oh, there's a Buddha in there. Oh, so nice to see you. He's so wise, you know. And in a moment, I could see through my own what it triggered in me, the contraction. It's possible, but you have to see the good. This is one of my main practices, looking for the good, that my main Dharma inspiration, Neem Karoli Baba, from Be Here Now, uh, instructed, keep looking for the good. Even when you see all the the awful stuff around. He said, keep looking for the good, because if you do, that's what you will bring out. I share this on most every retreat. I'll share it now. If somebody comes into a room and you know that they're seeing all your flaws, how do you feel? Flawed, don't you? Somebody else might come in who knows all your foibles, all your weaknesses, all your flaws, but you know they see your beauty. And they're looking right at it. How do you feel? Beautiful, don't you? We have tremendous power to draw out from others just what we look for. We'll find what we look for. Advanced compassion and metta, when you're really trying to sort out how people can be so cruel, means to have some understanding of who they are or where they've been, to see across differences. And I want to share with you, I hope I have it, yes I do, an article that I just read yesterday, it's very moving from the the new Shambhala Sun about this um, this boy who uh, this young man who's written a best-selling memoir. I think it's 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 uh, in the you know top ten in uh, right now in the country called A Long Way Gone, uh, Ishmael Bea, and uh, he was um, a child soldier in Sierra Leone. And this is, uh, this is, I'll read a little bit about it. 
a few days after his whole um, family and village uh, and all of uh, all of the people he knew uh, were killed, he happened to be in a nearby village um, uh, with some friends, and he came back and. The, a few, uh, actually it's a few weeks after that happened, a few days after his best friend's death, Bea was walking along a dirt path when two government soldiers motioned with their guns for him to follow them. He was drafted into their army, and for the next three years, he was, as he put it, a long way gone. As a child soldier, Bea committed all sorts of atrocities, including murder. I lost my humanity, he said. And then it goes on, he talks a little bit about some of the things that happened. UNICEF workers rescued Bea from his three-year ordeal in the Sierra Leone army and put him into a rehabilitation program for child soldiers in Freetown, the capital of Sierra Leone. None of what happened to you is your fault, one nurse told Bea. Still, he was plagued by demons. His sleep, when it came, was filled with nightmares, and during his waking hours, he struggled with drug addiction. One way superiors in both the rebel and state armies forced children to fight for them was by keeping them heavily doped up on drugs, marijuana, amphetamines, and brown-brown, a mix of cocaine and gunpowder. I don't think I would have killed without the drugs, Bia says, but with them and with the hatred he harbored toward the rebels, Murder had come easily. And the whole book is about his way back. And this is what he says at the end of the article. What I've learned in writing A Long Way Gone and reflecting on my experiences is that humans have the capacity to be both completely good and violent at the same time. Nobody during that war believed that they could be violent until they became violent. Everyone was victimized to become perpetrators. You had no choice. It was kill or be killed. But human nature is inherently good. Remembering this helps me find peace. Here's a picture of him. It's a big picture. This is the boy soldier who killed and committed atrocities. It's never too late. So we have to see through our stories about who people are. There's another story about, um, it's in this book, Path of Compassion, uh, Field Notes on the Compassionate Life that I read from before about um, Palestinian and Jewish teens uh, put together by this amazing woman who um, uh, just has them meet each other. Uh, she's been bringing them together for a number of years. And each community, they send, uh, they send people to it. It's in the States. It's in New Jersey. Um, and uh, they're dispatched to, their, to her program by their respective communities, thinking they will champion the, their cause to the enemy's face. But instead, they wind up literally taking their enemy's pulse. The first thing Melody has them do is gently grasp each other's wrists 
they've never touched their enemy, they have no idea what they feel like, then suddenly it's like, oh, warm, I feel blood beating. A few kids have been to other programs, the kind where issues are debated and coexistence extolled, but Melody doesn't want them to coexist. She wants them to care about each other. She's insistent on keeping it personal. Fine, she says, keep your hate if you must, but now just touch her hand, her face, look into her eyes, speak your heart. Using a technique known as compassionate listening, Melanie asks a Jewish girl to repeat the story in the first person of a Palestinian girl confiding how soldiers had come to her home, beat her family, discovering they were mistaken, left without an apology or offer of medical care. <clears throat> and then she's asked to describe the emotions it made her feel as she repeats the story the terror, the anger, revenge, and sadness. The Palestinian girl bursts into tears, burst into tears. My enemy heard me. The Israeli girl wept with her and they became fast friends. Goes on and on about how we just create this story. Every side in the conflict sees itself as a victim of history, struggling to survive in a hostile world while the other side is the ultimate threat to its existence. Individual biography is wo woven into collective narrative of woundedness called the dependence on negative memory. People get hooked into a potent resentment that primes them for revenge and escalation. Hate becomes a way to create the illusion of power. And on and on. <clears throat> but by actually seeing through that, you can come to the other side. Not so different. We're not so different. We're wired up for empathy and for compassion. There's what's called mirror neurons that they've now found in brain research. They started with uh, first looking at it with monkeys. Um, they discovered specialized neurons in macaque monkeys' premotor pre pre cortex which has a unique property. These cells would activate not only when the animal performed a specific movement, but when it watched the experimenter perform the same action. These mirror neurons are now found in the human brain, a largely unheralded discovery whose implications are sparkling in quite, scientific, uh, quite a scientific revolution. You know, one study shows the same cells that light up when a person's finger is jabbed with a pin also light up when someone else's finger is pricked. We've all experienced this effect. We wince when we see someone stub their toe or hop painfully on one foot. We know how it feels. And then they had this recent study. One experiment found that each time a rat is given food, its neighbor receives an uh, if its neighbor receives an electric shock, the first rat will eventually forego eating. And they did the same thing with these, uh, with these monkeys, and one monkey uh, stopped eating for 12 days because they were wired up to care, and the same for people. Results show that when human volunteers 
they were they did brain scans as they were asked to think about a a scenario involving either donating a sum of money to charity or keeping it for themselves and the results were showing that when volunteers placed the interests of others before their own the generosity activated a primitive part of the brain that usually lights up in response to food or sex altruism was not a superior moral faculty that suppresses basic selfish urges but rather is basic to the brain hardwired and pleasurable so this quality of being of benefit to others um it feels really good as it says as shanti deva says in uh, uh uh in one passage he says it lifts us up from poverty into the wealth of giving to life and authentic happiness this book about where happiness is found positive psychology the study of authentic happiness by seligman martin seligman he says that authentic happiness comes from giving much more than from receiving that's a limited source of happiness so with all of this hard wiring for contribution compassion feels good but still the question is with the enormity of suffering how can we respond without being overwhelmed and this is where compassion needs to be balanced and held with equanimity as we've been doing the last couple of last day or so equanimity is not indifference it's caring it's feeling connected it's a centered feeling it's balanced it's not fighting our experience and it comes from a deep wisdom a deep understanding you know the serenity prayer grant me the courage to change the things i can and the serenity to accept the things i can't and the wisdom to know the difference this is part of the wisdom that is underlying equanimity it says oh this is the way things are and if i can't change them i need to learn to understand and accept them it's like this that's ajahn sumedho's great teaching it's like this oh it's like this that's the equanimity phrase summed up in a nutshell it's understanding that everything has its own karmic unfolding and we can't understand karma the intricacies of karma too deeply the buddha said it's one of the things that you'd go crazy if you tried to figure out but we can see that everything is based on causes and conditions we can't control things we can't control our own karma let alone others we can do our part but then we have to let go and if we're carrying around the pain of the world thinking it's up to me to take it away we could become burned out overwhelmed very quickly but with equanimity saying okay this is the way things are then the compassion can be held that's how it's balanced in the equanimity practice i had this experience when i was doing it intensively a number of years ago when my son adam who's now 20 was 10 years old and i was doing the phrases you know that you've probably learned you are heir to your karma you are 
your uh, happiness or suffering depends on your actions, not on my wishes for you, or not solely on my wishes for you. And at first that seemed a little cool, but then I got how it's not up to me to make everything all right. And I had this one sitting where different people came to my mind, like you have these categories. Well, in this one sitting, first my my wonderful wife came in and said, here it is, you know, here's the good news. You're heir to your karma, your happiness, unhappiness, depends on you. And she got it, great. And then I told, and then my other friends, and then this one, and then this one, and this one. But at some point, my 10-year-old son got into the chair. And that was a little different. Because when I started saying, your happiness or unhappiness depends on your actions, not on my wishes for you. I started to think of every awful thing, every parent's nightmare that could come. I called it my clockwork orange sitting. If, you, if you're familiar with the movie Clockwork Orange where he's getting programmed and he, he can't even close his eyes and he's got to see all these awful images. And it was one thing, drug addiction and car accident and disease and you know just uh, and each time it was like <gasps> it was hard and it, it stayed actually it was about it was over an hour with that it's like probably an hour and a quarter when i think about it just but each time i said it was like yes this is true i can't do anything about that and it really had a profound impact on my relationship to being his parent. The, and he is clearly the apple of my eye. I can't control that, what happens to him. It's not up to me to take away his suffering. It's up to me to support and love him as best I can, to be rooting for him, to be cheering for him, and then to realize he has his own karma, his own life to live. And the equanimity phrase turned into this shortened phrase of, I honor your life's journey. And there was still the same connection and love, but without that contraction and fear. You can also say, may I have balance? You can call on equanimity that way too. And so we do what we can. We have a deep caring, but we're doing it not so we can save the world. We're doing it as much for ourselves to feel the, the joy of caring and of compassion. And it becomes um, magnetized. It becomes uh, something that inspires others. If we try to do too much, we get burned out. And it's not very inspiring. Oh, yes, you know, I want to look like that by contributing that way. If we go around, yeah, life is hard, but I'm in here just kind of trying to make it better for everybody. God. <laughs> Sign me up? No, thank you. <laughs> but if you say, gosh, it feels so good to care and share. You know, the Buddha, uh, the Buddha, the Dalai Lama says, world systems might come and go, 
this earth, this planet as it is, can come and go. Who knows if it will last? But we do our part, and if we know we've done the best we can, then we can feel good about what we've done. And in the process, inspire others. Underneath the outrage and the anger, there's caring. And if we can transform all of that hostile energy, if we can go underneath to tap into the place that just really cares about life. I love uh, An Inconvenient Truth, uh, the, the Al Gore movie, because even as scary as it is, what he, what he does is appeal to how much you love life. And it's an uplifting message, not, oh my God, let's, you know, the sky is falling. It's just feel how much you care and then share that with others. And that's what becomes contagious. So this equanimity, as T.S. Eliot has this beautiful line, he says, teach me to care and not to care. It combines both the caring of compassion and the, the sense of, okayness with things are the way they are. And in that, we start to transform all the suffering in a very beautiful way. This is Chagdad Rinpoche. He says, Tibetan Buddhists use the peacock as a symbol for the bodhisattva, the awakened warrior who works for enlightenment of all sentient beings. The peacock is said to eat poisonous plants and said to transmute them into gorgeous colors of its feathers. It does not poison itself, just as we who wish for world peace or peace in our lives do not poison ourselves. So to transmute the suffering into something beautiful, it's by transmuting our suffering into compassion. That's how we can approach our practice, to use our practice truly as a gift to everyone else for the benefit of all beings. It was so beautiful, that question this, this morning about how sometimes the love, it becomes so big that you feel you're going to burst. How can we hold it all? This is something to understand that as we get more and more in touch with those feelings of metta, that the love doesn't belong to us. It's just moving through us. And we can relax and allow it. This is what the metta practice is really pointing to as you go through all of these dualistic char- char- uh, categories. I love you, and may you be happy, and may you be happy. You know, what is this me and you? What about, you know, no self? What about that stuff? This is going in the direction of real understanding that the love doesn't belong to anyone. It's just using us to awaken itself. And when we see that, when we discover that the love that's inside of us is real and good and wants to be expressed, and we do express it skillfully from that caring and balanced place, it starts to find itself in others. I close with a 
a quote, a favorite quote from Mayor Baba, who says, Love has to spring spontaneously from within. It is in no way amenable to any form of inner or outer force. Love and coercion can never go together. But though love cannot be forced on anyone, it can be awakened in them through love itself. Love is essentially self-communicative. Those who do not have it catch it from those who have. True love is unconquerable and irresistible and goes on gathering power and spreading itself until it eventually transforms everyone whom it touches. This is why we're practicing and what we're doing. Let's sit for a moment. Love is essentially self-communicative. Those who do not have it catch it from those who have. True love is unconquerable and irresistible, and it goes on gathering power and spreading itself until eventually it transforms everyone whom it touches. This talk was given by James Barris at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on July 19, 2007. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.